So then we looked at um, Job and Daniel and Abraham and the disciples, and we're going to look at a, another character in the New Testament. And one of the phrases that we just kept going back to that was consistent in every Sunday was this phrase, our faith doesn't need to be pretty. Right? We don't need to enter our faith in this faith world beauty pageant. There's no evening gown competition. There's no talent competition. There's no swimsuit competition. There's no answering questions with world peace type of thing, right? It is, you don't need to do that. And that, this is the first thing that we need to get settled in our heart, that our faith doesn't need to be pretty. We don't need to perform Real is better than perfect. However you want to state it, I don't care. We just need to come to that understanding that our faith does not need to be pretty. But, as we saw in the characters of the Bible, with Job, it does need to persevere. Is that how you spell that? No, there's an E. It does need to persevere, right? We talked about everything that happened to Job. And he had this 42-chapter wrestle with God and his wife and his friends. At the end of the day, right, he came to this conclusion that even though my faith wasn't pretty and it wrestled, um, I am going to trust in the character of who you are and that you love me, and so he persevered. We saw in Daniel that it was consistent. He was a man who was ripped away from his home at a young age and placed in servitude to the king and fed things that he didn't want to eat and to do things that he didn't want to do, to learn a language he didn't want to learn, but yet he was obedient to that and he did those things. And his faith, even though it wasn't pretty all the time, he was consistent in the persecution. And even when the king elevated him, because God was with Daniel, and the king elevated him and put him in a position of power and, and prestige and wealth and all of that. And it didn't matter whether he was being persecuted or it didn't matter whether he was wealthy or fame or all the good. Daniel's faith was consistent. With Abraham, his faith wasn't pretty. But what we learned from him is that it took the next step. It kept moving forward. Abraham kept moving forward. Even remember we talked about that. Sometimes the greatest um, struggle we have is taking that first step in faith because a lot of times we don't know what two, three, four, and five, and six and seven and eight are going to be. And it immobilizes us because we look at that and it looks daunting. I don't know what, if I take this step, what does that mean? Am I going to lose my friends? Am I going to lose money? Am I going to, um, is there going to be hardship in my life or whatever it might be? Are they not going to like me? And it, we become statues. And with Abraham, he said, I don't know what's on the other side, but I'm going to take that first step in faith because I trust in my God and the character that I know him to be. With the disciples, 
in the New Testament. Their faith wasn't pretty, right? Think about Peter and Thomas and John and all of them. But what they did do is that their faith was being shaped by Jesus instead of that self. That's not sin, whatever that is. That's self. Their faith was being shaped by Jesus. Remember, they had these expectations of what the kingdom was going to be like and that the ruler was going to reign on earth and he was going to overthrow the Romans and all of that. And they kept um, wanting to push that angle on Jesus and he kept pushing back and he kept teaching them no, 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 no. Even up to the point where after he was crucified and he rose again and he appeared to them and had breakfast with them and was just about ready to go into heaven. And even up to that point, they were saying, when are you going to establish your kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the time or the date of that. What I want you to do, though, is be obedient to me. When the Holy Spirit comes, I want you to be my witnesses. And they began to understand what that meant in their life. Which leads us to this morning. We're going to talk about a man that um, wrote a lot of the New Testament. And so I would love for you to get your Bibles out. And we're going to look at a passage in the book of Philippians. And we're going to talk about Paul. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 10 through 13. And we're not going to do this every week, but I feel like in this series, I'd like to do this. If you would just stand as I read God's word this morning, that would be great. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at least you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So you can go ahead and be seated. As you're doing that, get yourself a pen and a piece of paper, and I want you to do a little exercise this morning. We're not going to do jumping jacks or anything like that. This is something mental. You're going to write this down. I want you to um, think about this question. How do you react when life becomes hard? How do you react when life becomes hard? Or how do you react when life is good? And I want you to think about this past week And if that's too hard, then think about this past month or maybe expand it to this whole year. I want you to write down three things of how you have responded or what is in your thought process when life becomes hard. What's going on? What do you do? How do you react? Negative or positive? Doesn't matter. Write those three things down. Go for it now.
Okay, I want, to, I want you to keep that somewhere because we're going to come back to that at the end. But this morning we're going to look at Paul. Paul was called the Job of the New Testament. Um, he was an apostle of the early church. He wrote most of the New Testament. Paul was uh, not one of the original 12 disciples, but was later um, came to faith in Jesus Christ in a rather dramatic fashion. Um, he was a person who contributed to a very dark period in the killing of Christians before he was converted. You can read that story in Acts chapter 9. Paul was very dedicated to what he knew, whether pre-Christ or after Christ. Paul was educated. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was the one that God said, I want you to preach to the Gentiles where before the gospel had gone out to the Jews. Now he's expanding that, and he's designated Paul to preach to the Gentiles. He had tremendous hardship and struggle throughout all of his life until he was finally martyred for his faith. And that all happened after he, he submitted his life to Jesus Christ. As I said, he wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote most of it while he was in prison. He was betrayed by former believers and false teachers. He was um, on a ship that wrecked, almost drowned. He was bitten by a snake. He was beaten. He was shackled. And he, all of this was happening to him while he was talking about and telling about the love that God has for them and how they are to love others because of that. He also um, had a thorn in the flesh is how the Bible describes it. We don't know what that is, but it was something that he obviously did not want that he struggled with. And he asked God to take it away, but God didn't. And it helped him to remain humble in his life. And so this is the context for what we see as he writes in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, where he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And previous to that, the, the Philippian people were struggling with um, not having enough or wanting more, whatever it might be. And they had just given Paul a gift and says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances, while in prison. And then this verse that we use a lot, and a lot of times it's misused in the context of how, why Paul wrote it in 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And so... Here's where we're going this morning. Our faith doesn't need to be pretty, using that same phrase that we've used for the last four weeks. But we do need to be content. And we're going to talk about that, what that looks like this morning. In this particular text that we looked at, Philippians 4, 11 through, or Philippians 4, 10 through 13. He was writing to the Philippian church. 
And he was writing this particular passage so not because that they might view him as unspiritual, but rather for the sake of this church themselves. Because right before that and right after it, um, this church was fretting or they had anxiety. And it was particularly over their needs and their wants. And so we see that in verses 6 through 7, Paul talks about that. And then in verse 19, there's this promise that God will supply these needs. So sandwiched between this anxiety and this promise that God will supply all these needs, we see these collection of verses. And so this is what the Philippian church needed to hear. And they also needed to see it exemplified in Paul. And this basic premise is this, is that this enjoyment of material abundance is not the basis of contentment. So Paul had learned contentment. He had learned it through experience. Um, Really, it was self-sufficiency because of Jesus Christ in his life. And he came to grips with his circumstances, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And he was able to move through them and really even excel through them. Why? Because he had this incredible relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we see that contentment is learned, not acquired. It's something that is just not, bam, you're content. It's not something you can go and buy. It's something that you have to learn. And so we see that circumstances is the arena for this growth in Paul. And it's the arena for growth in your life. And through that, through these circumstances, through him wrestling with this, he was able to develop um, this adaptability. Really, he had developed this spiritual equilibrium, right? That he could be good when things are not going well, and he can be equally good and content when things are going well. And so when that good part comes into your life, that you're not always grasping for that next thing or wanting that next thing to make you feel better or to have peace. So what Paul is saying, I have learned this, I have adapted well, there's spiritual equilibrium in my life. He is equally unaffected by poverty as well as wealth. He has learned by walking with Christ. In other words, this term that I've heard before is becoming God aware. So much time, so many times that we will read our Bible and not really be God aware. We will pray and be so enamored with prayer and not really be God aware in our prayers. But what Paul has been able to do is have this incredible relationship and walk with Christ and he is aware, God aware in of his life because this is the relationship that he has. That God is the sufficient one in his life. And then not only that, but Paul has developed a very distinct theology of material things. And those two things need to happen in our life for contentment to be learned. To be God aware in our life 
And not only that, but then to develop a theology of material things, right? When Scripture says in Ecclesiastes with Solomon, and then repeated again in the New Testament, that from um, you entered from the dust and you exit to the dust, meaning that you can't, you didn't bring anything into this world, you're not going to take anything out of this world. Material things in the grand scope of things do not matter. Now, relationships matter because when you're obedient and you share your faith and you live your life and all of that, you encourage, you strengthen, people come to know Christ and now their eternity is with you. And so we see that contentment is learned, not acquired. Contentment is independent of circumstances. A mark of Christianity for you and I is this, is, is this idea of contentment that we know how to be dependent on the Lord in every situation of life. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a secret to this. The first thing, we're going to go through four things. The first thing is to understand what contentment is. And it's really this ability um, to handle anything in Christ. And I think this is important, and this is important. It's contentment is that ability, that learned ability to handle anything in Christ, whether it's good or bad. And I think that even though going through that bad part is hard, it's probably easier to um, work through this content part because we know we have to rely on God and there's nothing else, right? It just forces us there. But when it gets to this good part, what we tend to do is we tend to forget about everything that God has done for us. And we tend to forget that. And so it's maybe a little harder to be content on this end of things. And so this contentment is this ability, this learned ability, this spiritual equilibrium to be able to handle anything that's in our life in Christ. And so that's contentment, what it is. This is what it's not. It's not loving anything just the way it is. It's not meaning that, like for my daughter who is childless and would love a son, would love a daughter. It's not saying, oh, well, that's just the way it's going to be, so I'm never going to try again. It's not that, right? Or whatever situation it is with you in life, sickness, whatever it is. It's not loving everything just the way it is. Second thing, it's not a lack or desire to or drive to succeed. It's not that at all. Contentment gets a bad rap in the sense that, well, if you're content, it must mean that you're lazy. That's not true. You can continue to have that desire and that drive. It's just that you're not defined by that. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but you keep going. Scripture asks that that we're to pray and to ask for things in his name. 
And then it's not laziness. What I want you to do is to watch out for those things that will squelch or kill contentment. Right? This myth of greener grass in our life. We always are looking on the other side of the fence for what that person has or that different job or whatever it might be in our life that looks appealing and it looks better than where I'm at right here. It doesn't mean that it might not be. It's just a reflection. Am I content where I'm at? And then if God gives me this, can I be content with that? But what tends to happen is we do this, and then we jump that fence, and we go, oh, that was good. And then, well, man, that looks pretty good. And then we maybe jump back. Or no, that looks good. And then we jump over here, and we're just continually, right, looking for that greener grass type of scenario. Another contentment squelcher is comparison and greed. Comparison, I'm looking to that other pastor who has this large church, or I'm looking for that other mom who has these perfect kids, or I'm looking for that, um, that guy who has this 19... 19- 71 green Camaro that's restored and is just full of power and blah, blah. Right? That may or may not be me. But, um, or greed. We just want, want, want. And it, it can be um, with the latest computer or phone or whatever it might be. Whatever it is. Third thing, unrealistic, unrealistic goals and dreams um, reaching that something that we know is not possible. doesn't mean we don't have dreams. It doesn't mean we don't have goals. But some things are unrealistic, and when we just never attain that, it can be a contentment squelcher or killer. Um, I think here's another one, is social media. And, I, and I've got this from another pastor, and so it's not original to me, except the drawings will be original to me. But how many of you are on Instagram? <laughs> okay, not, not right now in church. <laughs> I mean, Instagram is a good thing. I love it. I, I do it occasionally, um, and I'm not against it. This is what he said. He thinks it's awesome. This is what happens on Instagram, right? We post photos of our life. Uh, we see which one of our friends really care for us, right, right? Which friends will press like or whatever it is, like or love, doesn't matter. Which friends are really going to show up for me when I post something on Instagram? And it's this phrase that he uses I thought was awesome. It's this incredible way to feel emotionally insecure or emotionally awesome. Um, and so... Instagram is not bad as long as we understand that it's not real. Um, With all of the perfect angling of the the photo or the cropping or the filters or whatever it might be, really doesn't give you a clear picture of that person's real life. And so as long as we understand that, that Instagram is not the real thing, um, it it can be a good thing. It It can age you. Instagram is not always the most um, encouraging form of media in your life. And that could be for any of the other 
social platforms out there. I don't know if you know or understand that or felt that in your life. I mean, as I look through the Instagram feeds or any other social media type of feeds, um, I can begin to feel restless if I let myself. It's that fear of missing out type of scenario, right? Where I say, oh, wow, oh, man, look what they're doing. Or um, whatever it might be, look at that cruise they're on or look at that nice car they have or look at that new house that they're in or... Um, look at that tan that they have by the beach, and I love those leg photos that everybody posts. I'm sorry if you've done one, but uh, this that must look awesome, right? And then we slowly mutter to ourselves, if we're being really honest, my life kind of sucks because I'm wherever. There you go. <laughs> well, not here. Your life is awesome here. Let's post an Instagram photo of this. I'm just messing. So what if Paul had an Instagram account? This is what I began to think. And so we have Paul, as he um, was on this island. I'm going to draw little legs here. And we'll draw big, some big toes. <laughs> Shush. Shush. Don't judge my drawing. There's the ocean. All right, there's the sun. Here's a pretty bird. He's got a little drink with an umbrella in it. What does that look like? I don't know. Bottle rocket. That could be at fireworks. Might be fun. Right, he's got a little book. So there's Paul's Instagram post, and underneath it, he's probably going, I don't know. The island is great. Such an awesome Instagram post. But when you push back from that, right, what do you see about his life? You'll see that there's this there's a bunch of rocks over here, and then this ship is careening, and it's got a broken mast, and the sail's there, and the ship, he's been shipwrecked. You go a little bit over here, and you see this, Snake, Yeeks. who had bitten Paul, and then you see all these people, the natives on the island, they're over here, right? They're over here, and they're wondering whether Paul is going to die, and if he doesn't, then they're, you know, we're going to kill him and his people. So this is, may have been his post, right? But when you push it back, this was his life. And you could say the same thing about him, um, <clears throat> if I attempt to do this, he's, there's his head, maybe a little bit of hair, and there he's down, he's bowing down, and then <laughs> all this white light, and he's, you know, he might be writes, um, oh, I don't know what he writes, awesome light. And it's this conversion experience, right? So Paul has this conversion experience where he goes from being um, this killer of Christians to now this incredible uh, person of Christ. But when you pull back this, you go, well, wait a minute. I mean, he comes out of this experience and he can't see, so he's blind. 
He comes out of this experience, and not only that, but not only people who were Christians hate him, but now the people who he was aligned himself with, now they hate him. Now they hate him. So now he has two groups that are against him. From this point forward, we see him being shipwrecked and being beaten and shackled and put in prison and eventually martyred for his faith. And so we can, if we were just going to have this Instagram post, we can look at that and go, wow, that's awesome, Paul. You've been you know, blinded by this awesome light and, and you've now found Christ and you're just, ah. You pull it back and you go, whoa. But the same thing, and we just could do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It can be a contentment killer. And so here's the fourth thing is to give Jesus the steering wheel. Um, We give him the steering wheel. We like to drive our car ourselves. We don't like to sit in the passenger seat. We're going to go uh, to Colorado, and we're going to go ATVing. And my wife says, I don't want to be on the ATV with you because, not because I'm a bad driver, I'm an awesome driver, but because she feels out of control. She wants to be the one who steers. And that might happen. And I'll be the one terrified in the back. But we like to be the one in the steering wheel. And when we give Jesus the steering wheel, so many times we're over here going, ah, I don't know what you're doing. And we want to backseat drive. And we tell him this is what we think he needs to do and all of that. But if we're to be content, then this is what we need to do. Paul teaches his protege, Timothy. And this is the verse that he tells him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, and it says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Eugene Peterson says it this way in the message, A devout life does bring, does bring wealth, But it's the rich simplicity of being yourself before God. And so if you want to be truly wealthy, then it comes from being content because you have God as your provider, protector, all of that in a relationship. Have you ever been around a truly contented person? I mean, I don't know if you have, but I have, and it's incredible I mean, you, you really do love being around a person like that. Because why? Because they will tend to celebrate your successes and all of that. And they're always looking out for you. And they're not looking out for themselves. And they're not going to tear you down for something you did. A contented person is very attractive. And I don't know if you've ever run into an attractive person who's discontented. That's not a good thing. They're probably easy to look at, but they're hard on your heart. Because there's insecurity and everything else that goes with it. So how do we live content? It's this idea of godliness 
plus contentment. It's a package deal. And so we need to be God aware. We need to be God aware. And then contentment is being settled. Being settled in our heart. Being settled with God. And being settled with the life that he has for us. So it's not meaning that you settle. It's just meaning that you're settled in your heart where you're at right now today. Philippians 4.13 says this. And I love how he writes this verse. It says, whatever I have. Emphasis on that. Wherever I am, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I mean, that is the key to being content. That is the key in this life of wanting to be godly, wanting to be more like Christ. That's this key in this idea of faith is to be content. It's wherever or whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. And that is to understand that incredibly. It gives you this. Peace. So what do we do? We become people who are content. Not in our circumstances, but in the God we know and live for. This is what I want to end with. These three things. Be God aware. And this is what I believe will happen in your life. Be God aware in your prayers. Be God aware as you read your Bible. Be God aware as you serve. Be God aware as you attend church. Become God aware in every moment of your life. And this will follow. And that is a guarantee. Be self-aware. And this will follow. Contempt will follow. So it's the act of despising. It's that act of despising your situation in life or how much money you have or how many friends you have or whatever it is. You can insert whatever you want to in that blank. But when you become self-aware, when you become so selfish in your life where Jesus is not on the wheel but you are, then I believe contempt will follow. The act of despising and contentment will not be a part of your life. So here's what I want you to do this week, if you can. Take that list that I had you make. I want you to look at it. And I want you to do an internal contentment meter check. 
to being ah, content or mm, there's contempt. Where are you at in this peace? What do I need to do to learn contentment? So do the check. And then I want you to do this. That says practice. Practice the art of contentment. Practice it daily if you need to, moment by moment, hour by hour. But practice the art of contentment. It's something that you can learn. And then continue to look at Philippians 4.13 in the proper context. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Our faith doesn't have to be pretty, but it does need to be content. Let's worship together.